How many of you have had a mountaintop experience of some sort or other? The sort of experience that you, you just, I mean, it's beautiful, it's awesome, it's one of those maybe uh, a, a spiritual experience. It can also be some sort of um, uh, like hiking experience when you actually do see from a mountaintop some beauty. How many of you have had those sorts of experiences, right? Mountaintop experiences are, are, are great experiences. Um, I've had several in my life at different times. One in particular that I'm always reminded of is uh, from when I first began ministry, I mean literally first began full-time ministry, uh, I, I came on on staff at a church and two weeks later they had already planned a conference that the youth ministry was going to and so since I was sort of coming into it right near the end they expected me to go and actually I was the only transportation for these kids because I had to drive a car uh, so it, it, they were expecting a lot of me but I, I jump in to this conference down at San Diego State University San Diego State is, uh, it's in San Diego, so it's beautiful, you know that. It's on a little bit of a hill overlooking some of the city. It's a beautiful campus, and it was about, I want to say there was about 2,000, 2,200 kids there, high school kids, um, from all over the continent, and we gathered for, I think it was about five days of worship and socializing and fun stuff and teaching and growing and lots of different things were going on um, that, that we got to be a part of. And where we had our, we called it main stage. Main stage was in this outdoor amphitheater and it, just a beautiful setting. And we had this great praise band lead us in worship. And then we had a speaker by the name of Ron, Ron Hutchcraft. Some of you might have heard of him, and he spoke to us uh, for several days in a row about um, walking with God and really was calling all of us, including these 2,000 high school kids, to walk with God. And at one point, he had what we know is an altar call, and he invites anyone to come forward who wants to walk with God, wants to have a relationship with Jesus. And I'm sitting there, I'm brand new to youth ministry. I barely even know who these kids are. I'm not sure if they're kids from my church or another church, so I'm just introducing myself to everybody because I, I, I have no idea who's, who's part of my youth group. I'm brand new to it. And um, at this altar call, there's, there's 400 kids who stand up. Now, I come, from, I come from the same tradition that many of you do. It's a very sort of um, quiet reserved tradition, the idea of standing up and going forward to, you know, say you're going to follow Jesus or raising your hand is not something that many people from the tradition that I, we're a part of uh, naturally do. So for me to see 400 kids stand up and say, I want to follow Jesus. As a young, I think I was 22 years old at the time, I was just sitting there watching and going, yeah, this is, this is it. This is this. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, but I want more of this. In fact, I went home and said that to Chris, and I said, I know why I'm supposed to be doing this youth ministry thing is because of what I've experienced at San Diego State University, watching these kids saying, I want to follow Jesus. Now, unfortunately, about two weeks later, I was sitting with one of the kids and talking about him getting caught drinking uh, at a school function, but uh, that's, a, that's oftentimes happens after the mountaintop experience as well. And in our text this morning, we see a mountaintop experience of a little bit of a different sort with Peter, James, and John, and we see them interacting with Jesus in an extraordinary way, 
And what God gives to them and what God gives to us here is a reminder of how we think about, how we live into, how we interact with God's glory from mountaintop experiences. Let's begin reading at verse 2 of chapter 9 of the Gospel of Mark. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There, was, there he was transfigured before, him, before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Now, I'm sure there's some of you, especially because we've talked about geography the last couple messages or in this series a lot, you're wondering, okay, which mountain? You're wondering about sort of what does that six days mean? There's a, a lot of different stuff out there that you can read and you can, it could be Mount Sinai, the place where God the Father actually gave the, Mo, uh, gave the, the law to Moses. It could be some other important mountains, but there's not really a clear answer. So I didn't want to dive too far into that. And there's also not a clear answer that why six days? There's something there. What do we think about? Do we think that then this is a seventh day, a day of rest, a, a day of God's glory? It's, it's hard exactly to tell. But what we do know is that here in this, this story, Peter, James, and John are confronted with something that they have not ever seen yet. Now, they've seen Jesus' power. They've seen him show miracles. They've seen him multiply food, as Nick preached about last week. They've seen, uh, they've seen all these different manifestations of the power of the Messiah, the power of Jesus. But here they get a glimpse of his glory. And it's this powerful image, right? I mean, I'm not sure what that would look like. Having clothes that were bleached or, or so, so glowing that they were uh, whiter than anything that could bleach them. What, it, what it, his face looked like in that moment. What even sort of the image of the backdrop with Jesus standing in it. You, you wonder what that looks like. What these disciples are being, uh, being witness to. What we do know is that the verb used to describe the shining of Jesus is a verb that is often used. It's actually used in two contexts. It's used for the shining of the stars in the heavens which are obviously a beautiful, uh, uh, incredible element of God's, God's glory and God's creation, and also shiny, um, valuable metal. So something like gold or platinum, something that had value. So what we're seeing in this transfiguration of Jesus, of this glow of God's glory, is, is beautiful and valuable. And one of those things that I'm sure as the disciples sort of basked in the presence of God's glory was overwhelming to them. In fact, we know that to be true. Keep reading here in verses 5 and 6. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, which is interesting that he says Rabbi. It's the first time he uses Rabbi in the gospel to acknowledge Jesus as his teacher. It's interesting that he does that in light of God's glory being shown to him in Jesus. It is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. So Peter Peter actually does exactly what Peter always does. 
And that when he doesn't know what to say or maybe he shouldn't say anything, he says something anyway. And it gets him in trouble over and over again, right? I mean, we know that. We also know it's, it's actually not that, it's, he's not that far away from having done it just before. Look at chapter 8, verse 32. Jesus uh, ends up having to rebuke Peter because he did exactly that. He opened his mouth when he shouldn't have to Jesus about his, what Jesus was doing. But, and, and of course we think, you know, Peter is such a loud mouth. Um, he, he's, he just talks without thinking, which is sort of funny that I would say that because I certainly bear that characteristic myself. Talking without thinking or maybe saying something when I shouldn't. Uh, but then I wonder what I would do if I were confronted with the glory of God in this way, I mean, what would you do? What would you do if you had this sort of experience? How would you respond? Would you, um, would you maybe drop to your knees and worship? Would you just stand there with your mouth agape? It's incredible. Maybe, maybe you would take a step back and, and have to give yourself some space to deal with it. Because it's so amazing. You know, I can sit here and I can fault Peter for trying to do something what seems to be silly. In essence, what he's saying, hey, Jesus, this is pretty cool. Let me make some shade for us. It just it seems like a silly thing. But it's because what he sees is so incredible. And in essence, his brain is taken up so much by it. He's got nothing else. He's got nothing else that he can do except this, the, even this silly thing about shade. Peter does this, but in many ways, he's manifesting what we do with God's glory. When we see it, when we experience it, we're tongue-tied. We're confronted by something either so beautiful or so powerful. What do you do with that? For years when I was in college, I was on a choir and that choir every year at Christmas time had what we called Lessons and Carols, which was our Christmas concert every year at LaGrave Christian Reformed Church. LaGrave Christian Reformed Church is in downtown Grand Rapids. It's a beautiful, beautiful old, old church. I think it probably sat a thousand people and it was always full for those concerts because this choir that I was a part of was a really good choir and there was a lot of beautiful music that we made. And I'll never forget, because we, I did it two years, this concert two years while I was at Calvin, that we always closed with the same song, Oh Come All You Faithful. And it was this um, sort of thing where the congregation would sing the, the Christmas carol, and we'd have all this, what we call descant and melody over top and different parts doing different things. And we also had an orchestra and this orchestra was a, a bunch of college students, but also some professors and, and professionals who, who played and very, 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 very talented, very, very good. And in fact, I'll never forget because we had a guy who was on the chimes. I don't know if you've ever seen the chimes, but the chimes are these big pipes that hang down from a stand and you more or less have a hammer that you take and you bang the chimes and they all have different tones. And these were huge chimes that when the person who was doing them hit them and he hit them hard, they, I mean, the loud was just 
or the, 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 the sound was just huge. And it filled the place. And we're singing and the orchestra is playing and the congregation is singing. And it had snowed on the way to the, the concert that night. So there was new snow out the windows and there was candlelight in the aisles. And we're singing for all we're worth. And you come to that last note and the conductor is standing there and he's holding it. You know, they get the note that you're holding forever. And I'm running out of breath. You're just singing for all your work and then worth, and then finally he closes it. And there's that moment of silence when we're all just sort of sitting there, overcome by what we had just participated and heard, and even what we had just sang. Oh, come let us adore him. Oh, come let us adore him. Oh, come let us adore him. Cry. Christ the Lord. And I'll never forget, I get a tear dripping down my, my face because I just bore witness to the glory of God in a group of people with all their worth, with the talents that they have been given by God giving him praise. And honestly, there is not a word that I could have said to that moment to capture it. Except maybe, wow. So for Peter to respond the way that he does is almost fitting because it's what we do when we're confronted with something that beautiful, that powerful, that amazing. Peter doesn't know what to say, but someone does. Verse 7. Then a cloud appeared and covered them. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Now, if you know anything about the scriptures, and if you've read the beginning of the Gospels, you know that there's a baptism story there, right? That has a very similar phrase. In fact, it is very similar in the book of Mark, except in the book of Mark, it's first person. The father is talking to his son. You are my son who I love. With you, I am well pleased. It's a first person interaction. In this, we get a third person interaction. God is talking to somebody. And the question is, who is he talking to? He's, he, now, he's, he's got three, there, there, there's really three options that it could be, right? Is he talking to Jesus? No, he's not talking to Jesus. He doesn't address Jesus. He did that in the baptism story. Is he talking to Moses and Elijah? Well, no, he's, we, we, he can't be talking to Moses and Elijah because they already know this. Moses and Elijah, for the years that they were on the earth, had actually talked and interacted with God. When, when Jesus is speaking with, with Moses and Elijah again, this is not their first conversation. They don't have to go, hey, I'm Jesus. Hi, I'm Moses. Oh, uh, Elijah, Jesus, Elijah, Moses. You know, they don't have to do those introductions. Because Jesus already knows Moses and Elijah. Why? Because God spoke with Elijah and Moses. We know that from the text. And we know that God is one, right? So if God is one, God the Father speaking to Moses is 
Christ the Son speaking to Moses, and likewise for Elijah. So they're not in an introduction phase. God is not speaking to Elijah and Moses. Who is he speaking to? There's only one option left. Speaking to the disciples. Why? And it sort of begs the question, not just why is he saying what he's saying, but why is this whole story? Why, what's the purpose of this? And what's the purpose of Peter, James, and John coming along to the top of the mountain? Jesus could have just gone by himself and, and had his little confab with Moses and Elijah. But he didn't. He brought the three. So in bringing the three and the father addressing him, why? What's the purpose? And as we see the purpose eventually is that God's glory is revealed. But not yet, right? We know that from the story. In fact, we'll get there in one second. Jesus actually says to the disciples, don't tell anyone yet. Don't share this yet. The world's not quite ready for this. It will be, and that's not far away. And when that time comes, make sure that you do it. Make sure that you do it. In many ways, what the Father is saying to the disciples in saying, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. He's saying, prepare for that moment. Prepare for that moment when you reveal the glory of my son to the world. Prepare for the moment that you tell this story. That's the whole purpose of Peter, James, and John being there. But we can see it's still taking some time for the disciples to figure this whole thing out. Verse 8. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead, they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. So we get this whole action, this whole activity of the transfiguration. The disciples and Jesus are coming down, but Jesus says, keep it a secret. Keep it a secret until that time comes. When is that time, Jesus? After I rise from the dead. Now, for us, that phrase, to rise from the dead, is a natural phrase that Jesus would speak, and it should be understood as a natural phrase, right? Because we all know the end of the story, and the end of the story, Jesus rises from the dead. Guess what? That was a new thing when it happened. And Peter and James and John, hearing Jesus say this new thing that they'd never heard about before, are trying to figure it out. What in the world does that mean? And it seems natural that they would be wondering that. Why? Because they had just spent time with Moses and Elijah. What's interesting about Moses and Elijah? How they ended. How did Elijah end? raised up into heaven. So did he die? What, how did Moses end? He went up to the mountain. The book says he died. 
But tradition says that he also, like Elijah, was raised up. So, for Peter, James, and John to hear Jesus say the words, I will be rising from the dead, and they've just seen the two people in tradition who did not die, you can imagine that they're trying to figure out, what does that mean? Is Jesus going to do an Elijah on us? Are we going to get to be the people who stand on the mountain and watch him go up to heaven? Which is odd, because that's exactly what happens, right? Except there's a little interlude there when Jesus actually, I don't know, dies. It's different than the story of Elijah and Moses. But they're trying to figure it out because they haven't ever heard of it before. And you can imagine, actually, I can't imagine. What I can't imagine is that they actually held it in. They actually didn't tell anyone. They have all these questions about it. Jesus has just told them about this new thing rising from the dead. They've seen Jesus clothed in like glow sticks. They've watched Elijah and Moses show up. I mean, they're, they're sitting there and they don't tell anyone. It's incredible. You can imagine they're just sitting there with all those questions. You imagine, I can imagine that there were times when the three got together and said, oh man, remember that? That was crazy when that happened. Yeah, I guess we can't talk about it with anybody yet. But that day's coming. And Jesus teaches them that that day is coming. Verse 11. And they asked him, why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come. They have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Now, this gets a little confusing because is Jesus still talking about Elijah or is he talking about himself? Is he saying that he is Elijah? Yes, he is. He is saying that he is Elijah. He is, he has come. Why? Why did Elijah come? To restore all things. And like Elijah, but in a very different way, Jesus suffers for all that. Jesus is pointing to the future. And it's not too distant. This is what you can expect, disciples. Yeah, you saw the beauty of my glory. You saw me in the, in the lit up jacket. You saw me with Elijah and Moses. But the stuff to come is hard. Off of the mountaintop, Jesus is reminding them there's valleys ahead and there's a name for that valley. The valley of the shadow of death. It's coming soon. So we sit there and we say, it's a great story. It's a lovely story. It's the sort of story that paintings have been made of and and that we can tell um, others. But what do we do with this? So what? What What do we get challenged to? by this story? What is, what is the transformation that happens in us that we don't just sit here with this story and do nothing with it? I don't often do this, but I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles over a couple of chapter or a couple of books to Acts chapter 2. 
And we'll begin there at verse 36. Now this is the story of post-Pentecost, Peter and the disciples going to the temple and beginning to teach about who Jesus was, and Peter's the opening act. This is his first words, after what? Jesus going to heaven. Remember what he was told not to do? Don't tell anyone until I'm gone. I've risen from the dead. This is the first opportunity that Peter gets to do it. And what does he say? He says this. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He is the glory of God. Peter is acknowledging what he saw on the mountain. He is the first and the last. He is the one who can save us from our sin. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other, other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this is a guy who has stood in the presence of the glory of God in the Father, Son, Jesus Christ, who watched the patriarchs of the faith, Moses and Elijah, show up, saw the cloud come down, and heard the words, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. And because he listened, when the time comes and he can speak of the glory of God, he's ready to do it. Peter's not tongue-tied anymore. His words are not stopped up anymore. He's not going to say something foolish and out of place and wrong anymore because he's been able to understand more fully, not just the glory of God that he saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, but the glory of God that he saw in the crucified Jesus on a cross Saying, saying the words that he said. Acknowledging and, and the sin of the world on himself. Peter saw that and then he saw, of course, the empty tomb. He saw the hands of Jesus after the resurrection. And because he had listened, because he knew who this was, when the time came, he could speak of the glory of God and nothing was going to stop him. So my question is for you, how many of you have seen God's glory? Well, if you haven't, let me introduce you to it. This guy's name here is John. Okay? John's a pretty awesome guy. A guy that I love dearly. Has done a lot of ministry over the years. About three or four years ago, we thought you were gone. Everyone did, except the Lord. And this man is strong, and this man is leading Bible studies, and this man is preaching again. This is the healing of God. This is the glory of God. You've seen it. See that lady over there? You're going to love me. I know, Carol. That's the glory of God over there. 
it's hard for her to come to church because she misses her husband, Sandy, so much. She's got a lot going on in her life. But she comes here every Sunday and with tears on her face, worships God because it's all she knows to do. And she will do it because it's what she is called to. And she is faithful. Man, you are faithful, Carol. See that? That's the glory of God. Look at the person beside you. You know their story. I saw Bruce and Debbie look at each other. You guys are the glory of God. I saw, I saw you look at your daughter, the glory of God. Peter, James, and John bore witness to the glory of God. And what did they do when the time came? They spoke of it in such a way that nobody could stop the words of them. Friends, you have seen the glory of God, and if you don't think you have, I just introduce you to two and a whole bunch of others who bear witness to it every day, every moment. You and I, if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, see the glory of God in his people as we interact around life and challenges and brokenness and hurt and celebrations and sufferings. We are the glory of God that is being revealed. And when you have seen the glory testify about it. When you get a moment in a group of people, you speak of it. He is the one, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Lord. You speak of it and you tell people, repent and be baptized because that's the way to be within the presence of the glory of God. Friends, as you go from this place, what we learn from the Mount of Transfiguration is not just the beautiful story of Noah and Elijah and Jesus having a nice little confab at the top of a mountain with Jesus being whiter than snow. We learn that when the time comes, Peter listened. Peter knew and so when the time came, Peter could speak of the glory of God that was revealed in such a way that others might hear. Friends, that's our call too. You go from this place. You've seen the glory. Go and speak of it so that others might hear. Let's pray together. Father, you have revealed your glory to us in your Son and in the church and in our brothers and sisters in Christ, in our families, in this creation that we get to enjoy, in the work that we get to do in your world, in the so many different places. We see your glory. Yes, it does take eyes to see. Yes, it does take ears to hear. But as we listen and as we see, Lord, with those eyes and ears, we see your glory. Equip us then to speak of it. 
We might tell others who need to hear of the hope of the world in Jesus Christ, of the one who has come to redeem, of your son whom you love, Lord, that they can listen to, that they can follow, they can love and be loved by, that they can be changed by forever and ever. Lord, may we have that energy. May we have that courage May we, Lord, have those moments when, like Peter, we can't hold it in anymore. And we can speak of it so that others might hear. We pray these things in Christ. Amen.